All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word now, you'll give us understanding. And we pray that you'll help me to speak the truth and to do it clearly. And for each of us to follow you more closely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the, uh, one of the things that uh, I realised, having been a Christian now for most of my life, is that I can read over the same thing again and again and again and again. And there is a danger, of course, that I can take things for granted. Uh, I can assume that I know what the Bible says. I, I know what the story's about. I know the ending. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, if you went and saw the movie Titanic. Why bother? I mean, you all know how it ends, don't you? The ship goes down. But, uh, of course, there is much to be seen in the scriptures. And one of the great joys when I realise it is that each time I dip into God's word, I discover new things. But it's not just the discovery of new things that matters. See, if, you, if you've got something that's good, isn't it great to hang on to it? If you've got something that's truly worthwhile, you don't want to let it go. You've got something that is life-changing, revolutionary, which gives you an eternity of hope. That's not something you want to kind of grind down in the dust of familiarity, is it? And the dangers are that familiarity can breed contempt. But I want to encourage us to be people for whom familiarity breeds excitement and joy and gratitude and hope. And one of the things that we see when we look at the gospel accounts is that all four of them are very preoccupied with the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus is something that has become very well known. Uh, I don't imagine that it would have been foreseen in the first century that people would wear crosses around their neck, uh, that crosses would be at the top of buildings. What an obnoxious thing to put around your neck. What an appalling thing to stick on a building, a symbol of capital punishment, of, of terror, of the absolute atrocity of the Roman Empire and you make it into a piece of jewellery or a piece of window art. You see, we've taken something and we need to look at it back in its original setting to realise just how significant it is. It's interesting that as you read through the Gospels, as we've already seen, they're very back-ended. They're very focused on the death of Jesus. But it's not just the Gospels that are preoccupied with Jesus' death. Uh, the, the preaching in the book of Acts keeps mentioning that Jesus died, that he rose. Uh, you look at each of the letters, Romans, Corinthians, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and I could keep going through them. They're all focused on the death of Jesus. And when you get to the final book of the New Testament, the, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jesus there in the picture of heaven is described as the Lion of Judah but he's also the lamb who was slain. Now, in this final picture that you have of the heavenly reality as the curtain is drawn back, we are focused on Jesus, the heavenly ruler. And what are we told about him? That he's the lamb who was slain. Now, I want to have a look with you at Mark's gospel to see what Mark teaches us about the lamb who was slain. And one of the things that you might have noticed as you read through this account as Barb read it for us, is that it takes place at the Passover. So in verse 1, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Uh, and then they decide that they won't go about their scheming during the festival. You read down at verse 12, the second paragraph, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, 
when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And then Jesus talks about making preparations to eat the Passover. And down in verse 14, where he might eat the Passover. And then the disciples are to make preparations for that. And then in verse 16, so they prepared the Passover. So just a quick glance through this passage. The setting is the Passover. Two days before this takes place, and then on the first day of this festival. And uh, for those of you who were with us last week, when we looked at that extraordinary chapter, uh, chapter 13, you might remember that there was talk about the days when things happen and the hour where things happen. Well, the language of Mark from here on, we're going to hear about days, and here are two mentions, two days away, first day of, and as we get on a little further, we'll start to hear about the hour and the significance of the hour. In other words, we're zooming in to something that is the focus of attention. Now, what do we see? In verses 1 to 2, we see a conspiracy, and it's a conspiracy that has been kind of simmering away for some time. Verse 1, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. It's extraordinary, isn't it, for the religious leaders in preparing for the single most significant event in Israel's annual calendar, uh, getting together to scheme as to how to kill Jesus. But without really messing up the people too much last thing we need to riot and then when you come down to verse 10 we get an introduction to how it's actually going to come about so Judas Iscariot one of the 12 goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them and they were delighted to hear this and they promised to give him money so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over um, just a little reference back to last week again. Watch, 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 watch. What's Judas watching for? An opportunity to hand over Jesus. I don't think that's what Jesus uh, had in mind. Well, there you've got verses 1 to 2 and 10 to 11, a picture of how it is that the plot is focusing in on the demise of Jesus. But in the middle of that, there is a beautiful account of a woman who comes and brings an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume and anoints Jesus. And what you see when you look at this is that Jesus understands her anointing him with perfume to be an embalming kind of activity prior to his burial. We see it there. Uh, she did what she could, Jesus said. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So at, at this occasion, you imagine, you know, you can read the account, people are debating how on earth this woman could break open an alabaster jar, and basically, this is in the day before screw tops, okay, you can't put it back on once you've broken it, and pour it all over Jesus, particularly when it's worth 300 denarii, literally a year's wages or more. So I put it in today's terms, basically 100 grand worth of perfume, cracks it open, pours it over Jesus. And Jesus says she's done a good thing. Why has she done a good thing? Because she is focusing on his death, on his burial. You see, there is a focus on his death at the start and the end of this paragraph, and they're evil. But the focus in the centre is the 
it's, it's a glimpse into what Jesus has come to do. And then you get this extraordinary comment, don't you, in verse 9. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her, even in the Tampuan language in Cambodia. Who'd ever have thought? All right, so there's the first account, and we're reminded again of the importance of Jesus dying. He said that he must suffer and die, and on the third day be raised. Now this woman comes, pours ointment or perfume on him, and he celebrates that, but the plot that brings that about is underway. Well, the next paragraph, we read this. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat? Sorry, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. And the disciples left, went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. Now, we might be thinking this is a little bit like Jesus sending them off to find the cult. Uh, back in chapter 11, there was a cult going to be tied up, and Jesus said, tell them that the master needs it. And, and it's, we don't know whether it's Jesus' um, prescience, his omniscience, just knowing what's going on or whether it's something that had been prearranged. We're not told. It doesn't really matter to the account here, but it's a significant thing. They are going to make arrangements for the Passover, and Jesus is letting them know that he's already got it covered. See, they thought they're coming to make preparations for Jesus, but Jesus has got this covered. Go and find the bloke who's carrying the water. Um, really? How am I going to know which bloke? Well, because blokes don't carry the water. That was something that the women did. Here's a guy carrying the water. And he will have sorted out the place where you can set up for the Passover. So Jesus, I think that's the point here. It's Jesus who's making preparations for the Passover, not just his followers. Now, I don't want to assume that we all understand what's going on with the Passover. I'm not going to make a show, ask for a show of hands. So I'm just going to assume that it wouldn't hurt us to go back and see what the Bible has to say about the Passover. So I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 12. This is the original Passover. Follow with me or just listen on. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. I'm in Exodus 12. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people that there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Uh, now, in, um, in Australia, we know the difference between sheep and goats. Uh, if you want to know what a goat looks like, just um, head down to the caravan park in Bonnie Hills, go past the paddock and you'll see a few goats. 
sheep, they're fluffy things, you make jumpers out of them. Uh, but in the Middle East, they look very similar. So telling the difference between sheep and goats is not that easy, but it doesn't matter because you can choose a goat or you can choose a sheep. That's not the deal. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and to put it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and the bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So the first Passover is literally that. The angel of death passes over every house that has the blood of the lamb painted above the doorposts. Um, so the angel, when it passes over a home where there's no blood, uh, presumably the Egyptians who are worshipping false gods, then there's death brought to the firstborn male, um, human and animal. But the Israelites, well, that is the very means we discover as by which Pharaoh agrees to let them free after keeping them slaves for five for 400 years. And so this becomes an annual celebration. I'll just read on a little bit further. I won't read every detail here, but there's a couple of other things I think are significant. Down in verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And then the people bowed down and worshipped. So first Passover, the angel of death. Every year after that, the households were to take a lamb at the right point. They were to cook it in a certain way. They were to eat unleavened bread only. And they had their bitter herbs. And they were to remind each other of what God had done in saving them. In fact, it was the children's job to trigger the father's response. Why are we doing this, Dad? Well, let me tell you, children, many, many years ago, when our people were slaves in Egypt, God answered our cries and he rescued us from slavery. Every year, the Passover, they would remember this. And strict Jews today still remember the Passover. Okay, I want to read one more reference that's there um, in this chapter of Exodus 12. Uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. 
any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males of his household circumcised, and then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies to both native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. Well, it wasn't so much the circumcision stuff that I was wanting to point out there, but a reference to do not break any of the bones of the meat that you're eating. I'm going to come back to that reference. Okay, so there's a bit of background, the Passover. What happens here? Well, let's pick it up again in the account back in Mark 14. So David Shushay is going to read this bit for us, isn't he? That's very good. Um, if you haven't got the Bible on your phone, um, then the U version Bible with David Suchet reading the NIV, beautifully read. Um, there's actually an app yet for it as well. Thanks for that, Greg. I'd forgotten to remind people. But um, okay, look at look at what happens here. Right, this is this. It gets tragic. When evening came, Jesus said to the twelve, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, "Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me." one who was eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, now, I'll pick up on that in a minute. But I want you to appreciate what's going on here. Jesus has gathered with these 12 men and he spent probably three years with them every day. He's been teaching them. He's been discipling them. They've been following him here and there. He's been explaining the kingdom of God to them. They've been seeking to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, we read back in chapter 8 that Peter finally identified that this is God's chosen one. And now one of them will betray Jesus. He will be handed over by one of Jesus' own people. But have a look with me at verse 20. Jesus says, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. Two things in parallel. The son of man will go must go just as it is written. Thanks for that song again, Karen. It is written. God has said this would take place. We saw that over the last few weeks in Mark's gospel. This isn't catching anybody by surprise. This is God's plan. But does that absolve Judas from responsibility? Is he guiltless because God had a plan from all eternity that his son would pay a death for the ransom of many. No, it's an evil act. You see, we've got to have a big enough understanding of God to appreciate that God's plans can involve culpable, evil people doing things. In fact, there's a history of that right through the Bible. Joseph, who was thrown into slavery, who was framed for something that he didn't do, spent years and years in jail. 
eventually gets out and becomes second in charge of Egypt and helps rescue the people of Israel by providing for them and for Egypt during the famine. It says in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and the saving of many lives. You see, we're about to discover that the most evil event in the whole of history, and that is the murder of God's son, is actually the very means by which God will save humanity. He's a big God, isn't he? Who can do that and do it in a holy way? Well, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's going on here? What's, what's extraordinary about this? See, here's the danger, right, as familiar readers. Oh, the Lord's Supper. We should have the Lord's Supper tonight because there's the Lord's Supper. But, what, but what's actually going on? What's taking place back then? They're gathered for a Passover meal. Jesus and the disciples have together made preparations. What happens in a Passover meal? You take a lamb and you kill it. And you eat the lamb. Having cooked the lamb, you, you eat the lamb. You eat all of the lamb. And when the child asks the father, tell us what's going on. The father points backwards. He says, God rescued us from Egypt. God saved us and made us his chosen people. God is our saving king who rules over us. That's what the father would do. What does Jesus do? Well, we don't read anything much about the lamb not told anything other than about the bread and the wine. And instead of Jesus saying, well, friends, brothers, let's remember what took place with Moses back 1,500 years before, Jesus says, this is my body. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. See, Jesus is taking the celebration of the saving event at the cost of blood for the people of Israel and moving them to the future with a new saving event at the cost of blood, this time God not sparing his firstborn, but Jesus dying as the firstborn, as the ransom. For many, Jesus is totally flipping the Passover. Jesus is saying, what you thought was a commemoration looking backwards has actually been preparing you for the main event, which is only hours away. Wow. Wow. Jesus is saying that he will be the Passover. He'll be that sacrificial lamb. Let me read to you just a little episode from John's account of the death of Jesus. Um, all four Gospels record the death of Jesus, and they all 
do it slightly differently with some details that uh, are different. But I want to read you from John's account in chapter 19. After Jesus um, is hung upon the cross and the, and the soldiers um, come by to see uh, what's going on, we read this. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. You see, in, in crucifixion, my understanding is you die by asphyxiation. Um, you're, you, you're nailed up through your hands and through your ankles or your feet. And it becomes excruciatingly difficult to lift yourself up to be able to take a breath. Um, and you can just, I mean, you can't imagine really, can you? Just lifting yourself up through nails to be able to suck in some air. And so it, it was an act of mercy to come and to break the legs of these men. They, they slump, they can't, they, they effectively drown, they asphyxiate. And yet, what we read here in John, back in chapter 19, you go back to it. Soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Where does that come from? Well, my footnote says Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, which I read for you before. But that was about a Passover lamb. You see, John knows, Jesus knows that he is the Passover lamb. Even what was read back then and, and what people would have read each year if they were to read this account at the Passover was talking ultimately about Jesus. You see, what we are seeing taking place here, as horrific as it is, is Jesus fulfilling the promises already made. This is Jesus doing what was written. This is Jesus coming by the will of God to give his life as a ransom for many, as he said back in chapter 10. So when we look at the death of Jesus, we're looking at an event that happens not by accident at the Passover, but by divine will and purpose. It was to take place at Passover because it's what Passover had always been about. And now it comes to fulfillment. God's plan was never that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs would take away sin. It couldn't. Even an unblemished one-year-old lamb could never ultimately take away human sin. But the divine, perfect Son of God 
become man, hanging on a cross, does. So friends, when we think of the death of Jesus, we shouldn't be yawning. Uh-huh. I've heard about the death of Jesus before. No. No. Yes, it, it, it is familiar. I know it's familiar. But each time it should lead us in amazement to think God didn't spare his own firstborn for me, for you. Jesus willingly died in my place, in yours. Had we been there looking at the cross, it would have been right to say that should be me, not Jesus. But he did so to bring forgiveness, to bring rescue, to usher in a whole new covenant that is a new testament, a new promise, a new arrangement, a new agreement, a new contract with God that we can be right with him because of Jesus. So what's this all about? Well, it's about understanding all that God does for you and for me. It's about realising that the undeserving have been shown enormous grace. Not that we might live as we please. Not that we might work ourselves up towards God. But so that we can understand that God has given us everything freely. And so be grateful. So be thankful. Friends, I want us to remind each other of this by taking of some bread and some juice. In Mark 14, Jesus was celebrating a Passover meal with his followers. But since that time, Christians around the world have taken bread and taken wine and remembered not Israel released from slavery, but sinners released from God's judgment because of Jesus. And we have taken very careful precautions not to touch uh, the, uh, the juice. They've all been kind of carefully put down and squirted in. And there's no, this is a COVID safe, okay? Um, celebration of the death of Jesus. And if you're not familiar with this as a practice, um, you're very welcome to join with us, um, knowing that we take of this because we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. And that as we take the bread, Jesus is sharing his body with us all. We can all belong to Jesus because of his death. Not because we eat the bread, but because of his death. And as we take of the cup, we can remember that Jesus has brought in a whole new covenant, a covenant that we don't have time to go there today, but the book of Jeremiah said it's a new covenant on our hearts where there's the forgiveness of sin. So why don't we take of this together and um, I'd invite you, first of all, just to take a piece of bread and take the cup and uh, just hold them for a second and we'll all share in this at the same time. 